And then they spread out into like Greece and Crete and they just stretched and moved and spread all over the place and settled down and um, kind of made a living and a life for themselves in these other lands. And these were called diaspora Jews. And so what's happened evidently is that they, they continue to practice their faith, which means coming to Jerusalem to worship. And at some point in the last few years, these Jews have come to Jerusalem and they've either met with Jesus, seen what he's done and, and, and followed him as Messiah, or possibly more likely, seeing as the numbers that Luke's told us of people that turned to Jesus, it's in the months and weeks following Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension that these Diaspora Jews from far regions have come to Jerusalem and been challenged with the gospel. In fact, it may even have been as Peter's been preaching over these last weeks, Peter's been boldly preaching and proclaiming the gospel and many were added and they were people that have come from far away and they've decided, that's it, I'm settling, I'm not going back, I'm staying here, this is where God is, this is where, this is where the, the Jewish Messiah came to, and these people, they know about him, and I'm sticking with this community, and I'm selling everything, and I'm whole in for this, for this new people, this new group, this new kingdom of God here in the city. But problems arose, uh, as, as Josh spoke about last week, um, that they weren't being looked after. And so in, in verse 3 of chapter 6, Peter stands up and says, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Stephen is one of the seven from amongst this group of outsiders. These weren't Jerusalem Jews. So they were already second-class citizens. Stephen's one of them. So if you think of him in front of the Sanhedrin, this elite group of the most holy uh, legal minds, the, the, the Bible scholars, the, these are the guys that settle the disputes on what's right and what's wrong. These are the guys that argue in the courts of the law and pull out the books of Moses and say, here's what it says, or I don't really need to look because I know it off by heart. And there's Stephen, Greek maybe, Persian maybe, from a different land, probably got a funny accent, probably doesn't look quite, doesn't dress quite right. They can tell from a mile off, he's not one of us. He's not a Jerusalem Jew. He's an outsider. And actually, that's no surprise. That's what the church was made up of. That is what the early church was. Most of them, the 12 disciples, Galileans, from the kind of the dodgy bit up north. Okay, fine, they're from sort of Israel, but it's like, oh, bad Israel. It, it was, they were looked down on by most people. And even worse, there was tax collectors, there was ex-prostitutes, there was like rebels, there was, you know, Simon the Zealot. He was like a kind of a crazy far-right, like insurrectionist. He was a bit volatile, right? You know, there was made up of down-and-outs, misfits, broken people, I love that in the, in the previous part of the story, this uh, verse 7 of chapter 6, where it says, and many priests were added. They might have been the only people so far added who might have had some claim. But I was thinking about it. They would have probably been amongst those who most loudly shouted, crucify him, crucify him. These priests from the temple most likely would have been some of Jesus' biggest opponents. And now at this point, so far down the line, they've realized how wrong they were. These would have been broken, humbled men and women and 
people from this city. The church is made up of people from humble beginnings, broken people, ordinary people, misfits, doubters, and fools. And this comes as no surprise because we follow, well, we follow our Lord, Jesus, who is probably the, or is, no probably about it, the only person who can actually claim that he's worthy. The only person who's actually God Almighty. What do we read about him in Philippians 2, verse 5 and 8? Paul, another person with very little reason for pride, broken man at this point, says this, in your relationships, as in brothers and sisters, Christians, kingdom people, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The church has no place for pride. There's no place for pride in the church. We are a humble people. And I struggle because I've been part of churches where pride is probably the main characteristic. Uh, The church is no place for pride. We have been brought to Jesus, brought to God, brought into relationship with Almighty God because of what he has done, because he exalted Lord, King of Kings, humbled himself and came and stepped into this dirty, messy world and lived a life of perfection so that we could, that we could have it. Paul says this, again, in, in 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters, I've not got this one up there, Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Humble people who boast in Jesus. That's what we see in Acts. It's what we see in Stephen. It's a characteristic of the church. The next thing we see is that they, Stephen is empowered, empowered by the Spirit. We see in verse 8, 
Uh, It says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. He wasn't special, but God empowered him. God worked through him so that he could work, so that he could do things. And that's true again. It's no surprise for Stephen because it's the pattern we've seen through Acts. The church is a group of people insignificant in themselves, yet empowered by God to do great things, to speak with boldness. So again, the church is a place where we draw upon God's spirit. We ask him to step into our lives. We ask him to enable us. We ask him to do a work in us. It's not by my strength, but by his. Again, this comes directly from our understanding. We're in Christ, and in Christ, Christ worked through uh, or Christ ministered as he came to earth. The dis- uh, sorry, as he went to be baptized in the desert, John the Baptist baptizes him in water, and it's this interesting thing because we know that Jesus hadn't sinned; he didn't need to be baptized for the sins, right? That wasn't why he did it. Even John says that, like, "Why am I baptizing you? This is crazy. This is all wrong." Yet Jesus says, "I need to do this to start my ministry." And likewise, as he comes out of the water, the spirit descended on him like a dove. And I've, I've spent all week trying to get my head around this. And the answer is I haven't. And I don't think you can get your head around this. So if you've got questions, come and speak to me after. But I can't promise anything by the way of sensible answers. But I think what's happening is this. Jesus is identifying with us in our humanity that even though he was sinless, he still needed to be filled with the Spirit before beginning his ministry. He want, the picture is that before we go and do anything for God, we rely on him. We, we, we go in his power. We go with his voice. It's his calling, his direction. And Jesus models that for us. Though he was sinless, he still needed to be filled with the Spirit before beginning his ministry. How much more then do we, with our brokenness, sinfulness, and sinful nature, do we need to go on being filled? It's a hallmark that we see in Acts, and we'll continue to see as the book progresses, that the people of God, kingdom people, receive power and need to continue receiving, need to continue asking God. It's why we we pray regularly for one another to be filled with the Spirit. The next thing we see is that Stephen is rooted rooted and grounded in Scripture. Stephen knew his Bible. Yeah, chapter 7. In chapter 7, we won't won't read the whole thing, but in chapter 7, they say, you know, is this true? Are these things that they've said? They said that you've been blaspheming God, Moses, the temple, and the law. Four pretty big things in, uh, in contemporary Judaism at the time. And, uh, and so Stephen answers the charges. And it's amazing what he does in this gigantic, long, epic sermon is he addresses all four of those points. But he does so in a way that shows a masterful understanding of Scripture. He knows his Bible really well. And he just deftly moves through it like a, like, a, like a ninja with a, you know, it's just beautiful, like a ballerina, gracefully dancing. He just dances through the Bible. He knows it so well, just comes uh, to his head. And 
I suspect that that's the, well, I know because it says that the Spirit moved through him and he was, a, he was enabled and empowered to speak. Yet, the Spirit worked with what Stephen knew. And the reality is that Peter as well shows us in the previous chapters, uh, and, and as Paul goes on to preach later on, we see that these early disciples, this early church, these kingdom people, they knew their Bibles. They knew Scripture. Didn't just intellectually, but in their hearts. They'd meditated on it. They could use it in creative ways. They could apply it in ways that, you know, kind of boggle your mind sometimes as you look at the details. They, they, they fed on it day and night. They meditated on it. They shared it with one another. They used it to encourage each other. They wrote songs about it. They really just, they were so saturated with God's Word that it enabled them to, when the time came, speak boldly in public and, and, and say, well, you know, you're saying this, but don't you know what the word says? And again, it's, it's no surprise that the church, uh, Peter, uh, sorry, Stephen knew his Bible because that was a characteristic of the church. It's no surprise uh, that the church has that as characteristic because it's, it's what we learn from Jesus as well, who again, so knew scripture, so knew the warp and weave of the story of God, so knew from Genesis right through to Chronicles that the story of his people, our story as well, we're, we're children of, of God and so we're, we're, we're incorporated into the story. It was beautiful as we went through Ephesians. We saw that we've been grafted into the family and so their story is now our story. And Jesus knew his Bible and he knew the importance of using scripture to communicate to people the truth of reality. There's a power to God's word when we're talking to people. It, out there in Sweden, in the world, is a warped sense of reality. There is a lot of lies out there that is damaging human relationships, that is destroying cultures, is ruining this planet. And the truth of scripture we need to apply it to the context, and that's difficult, it's challenging. In a, a Bible-saturated world, it makes sense to talk about Moses and Abraham and, and that, but maybe the context could be different where you are, but there's still a way that we know and understand Scripture and allows us to speak into our contexts with authority and with a confidence, knowing that this is the truth, what God has revealed we can identify the lies and the untruths that the enemy is telling our friends and our family members and our society and our culture. Jesus knew this and used scripture to defeat the temptations of the enemy. We know the story of after this baptism, Jesus went to the desert, was tempted by Satan, and Satan says all sorts of promises, grand promises. Jesus' response is to just use scripture. Just use scripture. You've heard that it is said. You've heard that it said, you know that it's written. This is the truth. This is the rock that I stand on. I'm grounded and rooted in God's word. Of course, Jesus knew as well that scripture, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Luke 24, Jesus says, uh, sorry, Luke, in his first book, in his first great work, the Gospel of Luke, he says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to the disciples all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Ultimately, scripture points to and reveals Jesus and who Jesus is. So to be rooted and grounded in Jesus is to be rooted and grounded in scripture. 
and to be rooted and grounded in Scripture is to know and understand more and more as we meditate on it is to understand more our Lord. Just a, an encouragement then. As a church, we, we love to preach through the Bible and do so sort of systematically and go through and sort of see what's going on. But we also, we want to meet together in smaller groups. So as we start up small groups in the new year, part of what we want to do is look at the Bible together, talk it through with each other, ask the difficult questions and, and, and grapple with the text one to another. And I encourage you to meet with even smaller groups in families or with friends, meet up, just read through it. These guys didn't read. They just went to places where they could hear it. We can do the same. Listening to scripture being read, reading it through with one another in community, allowing it to kind of soak in and become part of the fabric of who we are as individuals and as a church. Finally, the fourth characteristic that we see as a a, a hallmark, a foundation, like a DNA principle of the church that we see in Stephen is self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial heart. Stephen is uh, is known as the the first Christian martyr because at the end, if you don't know, at the end of chapter seven, spoilers, uh, he's actually stoned to death and uh, some shocked faces. Um, It's uh, an amazing passage that then, that then shoots the story off uh, into, into the next section. It, it really is the jumping stone into the next part. That's why it's, like it's a bridging between the sort of uh, origin story and the rest. But Stephen literally gives his life for the gospel. But this again should come as no surprise because the church... Oh, I've got the words up, haven't I? Uh, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen knew that he was giving up his life for others. He knew that he was giving up his life for those that were there. It's amazing that he prays this prayer because we know that standing in the crowd is one who's going to go on to be a big character in the rest of the text. We know that in that crowd, and in fact, Luke's been dropping hints about this guy for a few chapters now, but we know that in this crowd, holding the coats of of the angry mob that are stoning him, is one called Saul, probably still with anger in his heart, hears these words hears this prayer, sees this angelic face of Stephen who's just boldly proclaimed truth, who's just deftly handled scripture, now giving his life up for that which he believes. Luke wants us to see that this has had an impact. Otherwise, we already mentioned that Saul was there. it's 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 not the thing that calls Saul. We know that the story goes on. Jesus himself breaks into Saul's life in a powerful way. But you know that he looks back on this. We see it in his, in his letters, how he, he talks about giving our lives up for God, the gospel. You see, Paul later on says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. For me, my life now is 
all about Jesus. And if I die, because my life is about Jesus, death is just game. It's, it's, it's what I was after the, to begin with. In reality, it's now stepping into what I was seeking for in the first place, Christ. Because now I get to go be with him. Now I get to be fully united with my saviour, with my God. I get to be in heaven with my Lord. Um, Stephen is this powerful example of giving up his life for those around him, but it follows the pattern that we've seen throughout the text, throughout the book of Acts up to now, because the church were marked by self-sacrifice, giving up time, money, resources, They had all things in common, we've read. They shared with each other. They looked after those in need. If someone had extra, they gave it to those who didn't. Because when your life is Christ and to die is gain, money is not that big of a deal. My property, my house, it's just a thing that I live in. My job... It's great, I love it, it's fulfilling. I get to do fantastic experiments with children because I'm a teacher, I love it. But it's not everything to me. If anything, it's a way that I can show Christ in, in the world. It's a way in which I can lead others into like, being better human beings, being better stewards of this earth. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, means that we hold on to everything that we have lightly. Because it's not going with us. Jesus is. Jesus is our prize. We give up what we have for those that have very little or don't have anything. Why? Because what Jesus did. In Romans 5 verse 6, Paul says this, You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To be a Christian, to be a a mini Christ, to be like Christ means that we give up our lives in some way for others. It means that we're loose with what we have for the benefit of those around us. It's not mine anyway, it's God's. And for me now, my life is Christ and to die is gain. So what I have, I give. That's what it means to be a believer. And we see that in the church and we see it so powerfully in Stephen. It's no surprise that Stephen's last words were the same as Jesus's last words. Forgive them for what they've done. Because Luke wants us to see that Stephen is being like Christ in the same way that we also ought to be. And we, we prayed this morning and a prayer that came out uh, was, was actually to... We, we, came out spontaneously, was praying for our brothers and sisters in other countries where actually there is a, a real cost to being a Christian. <laughs> Here it's like people are going to go, oh, he's a bit weird. I get he's a bit weird looks all the time at school <laughs> uh, from people. That's the worst that's going to happen. But the, around the world we have brothers and sisters to whom that cost is much more severe. So 
just to finish, and uh, Verity, if you want to come play, we're going we're gonna to take communion in a minute. And I hope what you've seen this morning, we've looked through ways in which Stephen is, these four characteristics, humble, filled and empowered with the Spirit, rooted and saturated with Scripture, and self-sacrificial in his life. Because that's what the church was. That's what the characteristics of the church were, and therefore ought to be. Why? Because that's who Jesus was, and who Jesus is, and who Jesus calls us to be. So I'd like to just read uh, those verses from Philippians again, but I'll read from the message. And then as, we, as I read it, uh, Verity will play, and we're going to take communion as well. So as um, Verity leads us in this next song, we can take communion. It will be set up at the back. Uh, but I'll read these verses again, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, Jesus set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion.